Hello, I'm Brad Hayes and I'm an FY2 doctor working in South East London and welcome to the Class of Current, a podcast for final year medical students about to start working in the NHS. We're now working in partnership with FDOCS, who've also produced a lot of really similar content for FIY1s about to start. This is the second episode in our two-part special on jobs, so if you missed the previous episode I recommend giving jobs part one a check out, uh, but let's get on with the podcast. So we're now joined um, by another member. Hello, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm an FY3 doctor working in intensive care in London. So last time we talked about how to prioritise a jobs list um, and a couple of jobs you're going to be doing on the ward. Now I'd like to talk um, specifically about some other jobs we're going to be doing off the ward. So one of the things on our jobs list is a discussion with radiology. So I think the best tip that I'd have is you write the request for your scan and make sure the information that you're putting on there is concise and it's the relevant information. So really simply say a chest x-ray. If you're writing a chest x-ray request, don't just put unwell patient. You need to say, have they got a cough? Have they got shortness of breath? Are they desaturating? Justify why they need the scan. And for things like CT scans, the easiest way to get a radiologist to approve a scan is to speak to them in person so that you can explain why they need that scan. And what you're trying to justify is, is the radiation risk that they have from having a scan, does it outweigh why they need this scan here and now? So for example, if you're worried about an acute abdomen, you need to tell them why you're worried about that and why you need a scan. And you should always be discussing these with your seniors, not organising them on your own. They should be some consultant or registrar-led decisions. I think sometimes it can feel, especially if you're being rushed on a ward round and a, consult- and a consultant says, oh, can you get them a CTPA or can you get them this imaging? And you just, you're so busy writing that you don't think to ask why they actually want that scan. So I think if you ever hear your consultant ask for a request with a specialty, or request with request with radiology. If it's not obvious, if you just get them to give you exact details on why you want the scan and um, exactly how you think it's going to change their management, because often their thought processes aren't that obvious, especially when you're first starting. And I've found even now sometimes they'll ask for something and I won't have any idea why they're asking for that. Obviously, the processes of getting a scan performed will vary between hospitals. I think it's important to find out early what the protocol is at your hospital. Um, you, as Rachel was, was explaining, you have to request the scan, usually online on the system. Then you have to vet the scan, which means the, the discussion with radiologists, which they then approve the scan. Um, and then the information goes to the radiographers who will ultimately perform the scan. Your job then is to liaise with the radiographers and find a, a slot for your patients. So there's a few phone calls, a few discussions that you have to make before a scan um, actually goes ahead. And then usually once the radiographers are aware, they may organise porters to come and collect your patient. Sometimes that might take a, 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 you know longer than you expect. And I've often um, wheeled patients down myself to radiology in order to get scans performed urgently so there's also the logistics of getting the patient to the scanner who's organizing the porters is, is that yourself is it the nurse on the ward is it radiographers um, or are you going to bypass the porters and, and take the patient yourself so there's a few steps that you have to 
few hoops that you have to jump through, I guess, before that scan is before that scan happens. Um, and it's important to know the processes. I think one of the most important things in terms of your role as a junior doctor in this process is to make sure you you are prepared for these conversations that Dan was just talking about. So before when you write this when you write the request for the scan and before you start speaking to radiologists, radiographers, you need to make sure that you you know who the patient is, you know what their hospital number or their date of birth or any identifiable information is. You need to know a little bit about their medical history, about why they need the scan. Um, and also some other important information you need to know is whether they've had a pregnancy test, if they're a woman of childbearing age, if they have any infectious diseases. Um, so for example, if a patient is C. diff positive, that changes the way that the imaging department will process that request. And they may want to put that person at the end of a list so that they can deep clean the room without disrupting the rest of the schedule. It's important to have all of that to hand and ready before you start making these phone calls because there's no worse feeling, whether it's with radiology or another specialty, starting a phone call with them and then being asked lots of questions that you just don't know the answers to and don't have the information available. You feel really stupid at times. So just taking a few minutes to get all of that prepared before you start this process, I think is crucial. Yeah, and I think, like Andrew's saying, having all of that information is really important. And this is where, like we talked about in earlier episodes, having a really up-to-date patient list for your ward patients which has their past medical history has their latest blood test results and their hospital number and date of birth this is where your list becomes your best friend because you can take that with you to discuss with the radiologist or when you're filling in requests you've already got all of that information to hand easily and you don't have to worry about searching through all the notes to find it all just following on from what Andrew said, so he mentioned pregnancy test uh, and infection status, but also uh, recent renal profile uh, GFR is, is important if you're administering contrast and how is that contrast going to be administered? So your patient needs to be cannulated and at some trusts uh, that cannula needs to be of a certain size. Um, so again, just a few more processes that you need to make sure are in place before the patient goes to the scanner because they'll just be sent back to the ward um, you, you'll get a you'll get a phone call saying the patient wasn't cannulated, the scan's not happened, and then that just pushes everything back by an hour or two. I think sometimes it can feel quite disheartening if a test or an investigation doesn't happen, and a lot of the times you can do everything that you can, but sometimes the processes aren't there. For example, there's no slots for an MRI or an ultrasound. So I think sometimes felt like that might be my fault that that didn't happen, but. I think sometimes you have to take a step back and think there's not actually much I could have done to get that to happen. There are processes in place that stopped it from happening. And just try and keep the patients informed and up to date. Um, obviously in the ward round, hopefully that will be explained that we're getting a scan, but that leads to a lot of anxiety, um, especially if, of when, when it's going to happen. Try and give them a rough time frame without pinning all your um, hopes on a specific time slot. Um, give them a rough idea of when it will happen. And if there are going to be any delays, then just make sure you keep them up to date and say, you know, it's, we're, we're experiencing delays. If it's not going to happen today, make sure you explain that to the patient because otherwise they'll be lying there very, very anxious. Yeah, and that, that conversation takes, what, 20, 30 seconds? And it can save you a lot of time and the patients get a lot less angry and it's better for the patients overall having that just really short conversation. So... 
you may find yourself, and very likely you'll find yourself in a situation at some point where you've been asked by a consultant or a registrar to organise a scan. You speak to the radiologist and they say, no, they don't think that scan is indicated. They don't think that scan's appropriate um, for whatever reason. And again, that in t- sometimes in that situation, you feel like you failed. But um, that's your opportunity to go back to your consultant, your registrar, to say, look, based on my understanding of why this patient needed the scan, I've spoken to the radiologist, they've, they've disagreed. Um, either you need some more information about the indication for that scan or what the reason why they want it, or your senior needs to speak to the radiologist directly to convey that. Um, it's, it happens quite often that um, seniors will request scans that will be turned down by radiology. Um, sometimes that will be because you don't have the right information, but sometimes that will be because that scan was just an inappropriate request. Um, so don't don't let yourself feel like you, you, you're completely at fault. Just make sure that you've got all the information you need. And if that's not working, you just need your senior to speak to them directly. So we've also got on our list about discussions with specialties. So I think the most important thing whenever you're ringing a specialty or in fact whenever you're ringing one in a hospital to ask something is, before you actually ring them, you need to know exactly what it is you want them to answer. And that sounds very simple, but we've all been in a situation where you ring someone, you give them a whole load of information, and then they have to come around and be like, okay, but what do you actually want me, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Why are you ringing me? So before you ring them, so for example, if you're ringing some cardiology because you've got someone with chest pain, your question to them is, do you think that they're having, is this a cardiac chest pain? Do they need to be taken over by cardiology? Or do they need any other investigation? So that's the question that you want to ask them. And so you can structure your information around that question and make sure that you're giving them all the information they need to be able to answer that question for you in a concise way that makes it sound like you actually know the patient and you know what you want them to do for you. And following on from that, what's the indication to speak to that specialty? Sometimes it's obvious, um, but sometimes it's not. And, And a senior will almost on a whim without explaining just say oh speak to respiratory about that and move on to the next patient on the ward round you're typing your notes you're you're writing your lists and you don't give it two thoughts and when you sit down you don't really understand why you're speaking to the respiratory team you pick up the phone and you're not really sure which direction you're going in so again on the ward round if you're not 100% clear as to why you've been asked to do something you need to clarify that and, and ask for more information. Um, secondly, the, the, the other thing is make sure you have all the information to hand when you're speaking to that specialty. Have a think. So this is something I probably struggled with when I first started. And, and then I tried to get in the mind frame of if what if I was the specialist registrar on the other end of the phone, what questions would I be asking the FY1? And so, for example... Um, a, a good exercise is to think of the tests that you need and the information that you need. So, for example, you, you uh, speak to the renal registrar. They will want an up-to-date renal profile. They will want an up-to-date urine dip. They will want an, uh, an accurate input-output, potentially fluid input-output status of the patient or a fluid assessment of the patient. They might want some special blood tests um, they, they will definitely want to know past medical history if they've got re- old kidney disease what's their previous creatinine why do they have a kidney disease what's the cause of that who sees them in clinic all this kind these kinds of things is key 
Um, and if, you if you've done a bit of information gathering before you make that phone call, then the conversation goes a lot smoother. So yeah, I completely agree. I think we've all been in situations where we've been sort of halfway through a referral and then realized we don't have the information and it's a lot harder trying to find that out while you're having the phone call. And I think it comes across, honestly, to the person you're referring to. So spending a good five minutes before information gathering is a really good thing to do. Um, and we've talked previously in, in episodes about um, using the SBAR format for handovers, which is to set the start of the conversation to give the situation. And that's where you can ask the, the specialist um, doctor you're speaking to what it is you want from them. It's very handy at that point to identify, do you just want some advice about the management or do you want them to review the patient in full? Because that will often change the way that they deal with the information you're then going to give them. Um, then, as Rachel says, you've got your information in front of you. You can give the background. Um, as Dan says, you can then give your assessment of the patient, including the tests that you might anticipate that they want. Um, and from there, you can kind of have a conversation about what the next steps should be. Um, often they'll ask you to do some things if they before they come to see the patient. So, for example, if you're speaking to cardiology and you haven't got an up-to-date ECG, they'll want that done um, before they come to see the patient. And I think once you've done it for a few months, um, you kind of get used to what you think they're going to ask. And there's nothing better than when you talk to a specialty and they say, well, before I come, can you do X, Y, and Z? And you can turn around and say, actually, I've already done them. And here are the results. And I think nothing for me feels better than that. <laughs> so I think we should move on. So what is an EDN? What is a TTO? What is a discharge summary? And do you guys have any tips or tricks for doing these well? So an EDN is an electronic discharge note. It's called something different in every hospital and every trust, but the fundamentals of it is it's a letter that they take home. And then a TTO is a to take, to take away. So not food, but what medications are they going to take home with them? <laughs> I think the my most salient point about discharge letters, which is something I only learned after I did my GP placement, is that GPs are really busy. They are really pushed for time. They don't have time to read a letter that's four and a half pages long and details what they had for breakfast on day four and what they had for dinner that day. What they want to know is, why were they in hospital? What are the main things that happened to them? What did you do for them? And what do you want the GP to do for them? And what are the hospital going to do? So it's, it sounds like a lot of information, but actually you can get that down to a couple of paragraphs. Using things like bullet points is really helpful because it just makes it easier for a GP to quickly glance over and see, okay, that's what I can do. That's what you want me to do. I'll do it. But what is really key is um, you, you do have to be concise, but you also have to include the, the key information. And what makes a, a discharge letter stand out and is very good is, is it useful to your colleague in the future? Not only to the GP, but also to a clerking doctor in two months when the patient's readmitted uh, and, and really think about what would I want to know if I was clerking that patient in in two you know two months time tip which I found really helpful and it might not work for everybody but it really works for me because I am terrible at typing and my spelling usually goes to pot is that I will write a discharge letter on Microsoft Word because it will spell check it for you you can format it and then just copy and paste it across because often hospitals have quite formulaic discharge letters in the space the software doesn't always spell check it for you so little things like gps are going to take your letters much more seriously if they they're spelt correctly and 
also just making sure that if it's a woman, say she, don't say he. Um, make sure you've got the right name, little things like that that are very easy to do if you're doing lots of letters or you're in a rush. But actually, it causes a lot of confusion and it means that people aren't going to regard what you've said and take it as seriously as if you've written a well-structured letter. GPs don't want to be told or asked to organise scans, follow-ups, investigations for patients. Um, there's only a few situations in which that's sort of appropriate and some of that will be um, you know, checking, uh, checking blood tests in a few weeks. But in the, in the, on the whole, you shouldn't be asking GPs to make referrals to other specialties. That's something that your team should be able to organise from the hospital. Sick notes, you shouldn't be sending people home from hospital to go to see their GP to get a sick note. If you anticipate that they're going to need some time off work, that can be organised from the hospital and you can give them a sick note. I, th I think it's things that are unrealistic and probably won't happen. So, you know, repeat using ease in two days time is just not going to happen and if that is essential to discharge then it's probably an unsafe discharge um, and and you can raise that with your seniors because gps aren't going to get that information quickly and they're not going to be able to contact the patient make an appointment get the bloods and get a result in two days time so it's it's about being sensible and asking the right questions i think the medical information is really important on a discharge letter but also little things like if you've got an elderly patient and you're sending them home with a new package of care or an increase in their package of care, little things like that that you might not necessarily think about, but actually that's quite relevant for the GP to know. It's quite relevant if they come back into hospital. And a really crucial thing that's often missed out discharge summaries on that same vein is do not resuscitate discussions and, um, and orders, as well as other kind of ceilings of care. Um, which can have big impacts on their care in the community and also if they're readmitted in an emergency. Um, so if those conversations have happened, whether or not that's led to ceilings of care being put in place, reform being signed, you should include that in the discharge summary as it is very relevant for their care ongoing. And just to say, I think we're, we're probably going to talk about um, being on call a bit later on, but writing a discharge summary should not be the job for the on-call doctor. So as, as the day team looking after that patient if you anticipate a discharge either that evening after your shift finishes if the weekend if it's a friday or a bank holiday um, or, or any other time where you're not going to be there or the team's not going to be there have the discharge ready have the discharge papers set up and ready to go so we've talked a lot about edns uh, we haven't talked so much about ttos Sure. So a TTO, it stands for a to take out or to take away in other hospitals, TTAs. Um, it's the list of discharge medications for that patient. Um, it slightly varies from trust to trust how this is handled, but usually if they've been in hospital for more than about 48 hours, um, what, they, what they'll need is a full list of discharge medications, which will be the medications that they were taking before um, and also any changes or new medications that have been um, initiated while in hospital. Um, as, the, as the doctor filling in the, um, the discharge medication list or the TTOs, it's your responsibility to make sure that all of the dosages and durations are correct for these drugs, to make sure that they're not being sent home on any drugs that were intended to only be given while they were there in hospital, um, and also to just double check that there are no you know, interactions or any um, problems with the drugs that they're going home with. Um, if, they've, if they came into hospital on a drug and that was stopped during their admission, that should be included in the TTO. And usually 
um, on most sort of electronic discharge systems, there will be a place for you to record any drugs that were terminated or changed during their stay. Um, I believe now in most trusts, definitely all the trusts that I've worked in, these are checked and verified by a pharmacist um, who will also arrange for the any medications that the patient needs that they don't already have in there in supply um, will be generated by the pharmacy and given to them on discharge. Um, so this should be checked, um, but I can't say with confidence that happens in every single hospital. I think an important thing to remember as well is like often um, you know a patient is going to be going home for a couple of days. You don't have to leave all of these things until the day that they're going home. And if it's quiet one afternoon, you've got time, like start prepping discharge letters and start prepping medication lists for patients that you know are going to be going home the next day or the day after so that it's not a big rush on the day. Um, in acute wards, often it is like, oh, they're going home today. We weren't ready for that. But if you're on a, a geriatric ward or a surgical ward, then patients, you know, they're going to be going home in the next couple of days. And again, there is nothing nicer than getting started on a discharge summary and realising that it's already been done by someone else who was pre-planning from the day before. That's genuinely a really good way to get in the good books with your colleagues. Um, I'd like to talk about death verification next. I think it is a very quite a surreal experience the first time that you do it and often it can be when you're on call overnight and so you know it's it can be a bit unnerving and a bit frightening so don't be afraid to ask someone to come with you the first time or even you know every time that you do it if it makes you feel a bit more comfortable doing it to have somebody else come with you in the room or if you want to watch someone else do it first again don't be afraid the first time to say would you mind doing this one and I can I know so that I know what I'm doing next time. The family will often be present um, and just being upfront and honest, um, kind of recognising that they've just lost a loved one, um, you know, offering a, a bit of a shoulder to cry on, uh, you know, in their time of need, but also just being upfront and honest with them uh, and saying what's going to happen next, that you're going to go into the room, you know, um, examine the body and um, you know verify the, the death I often say you know I don't mind if you stay or you know if, if you if you come in with me or you stay in the room or if you want to not come in or leave the room we've all been in situations where you've been asked to a death verification and there's eight or ten family members around and it can feel quite overwhelming um, in my experience, personally, I've just said to the family, I think it's, it could be a bit of a distressing experience watching me do this. Uh, would you mind just stepping outside for this? And I think that helped me do the examination. But again, it's completely within your rights to say what you think you would prefer. Treat it as any examination. Be prepared going into the room so you know that you're going to need a pen. You're going to need a light or a pen torch to check to check patients, to check the pupils and things. And so go and find a pen torch so that you've got the appropriate equipment. I know the temptation is that your, your phone has a torch, but just remember that, you know, we have to try and maintain people's dignity and using your phone, although we use it as a light for many other things, actually it's not that dignified for somebody that's just passed away. And so just being that little bit prepared and going and getting a pen torch before you go in so you're not jumping in and out of the room to get things that you need and having a stopwatch or having being able to see a clock so you can see the time when you're typing things. And the documentation of this is very important. Um, it needs to be clear that at the top that what you've, what you've done is you've verified death. Um, there's, 
there's different ways of documenting this. You would then give the, the, time, the time of death, i.e. the time that you did verify the death, and you need to then give your details, and crucially, you need to write your GMC number there. The reason for that is, is that if, you're, if somebody else is having to fill in the uh, cremation form for that patient or any other sort of end-of-life paperwork or coroner's referral, they will need to write the details and the GMC number of the doctor who verified the death and the time and the date. If you get called when you're on call about this, the temptation can be to let it slide down your jobs list. And I think, yes, if there's an acutely unwell patient, you should go and see them first. But remember that you verifying their death allows the nurses to, to then clean the patient, to let the family come back in, to get the patient sorted out so that they can leave the ward, which allows the mortuary to start processing things. It allows the beds to be cleaned. So although there's no acute issue for the patient that you need to go and see actually it does need to still be done in a timely fashion and your time of death is the time at which you which you verify them and sometimes families can get a bit upset if there's a big delay and when they've been told by the nurses that they've passed away if they're there but actually nobody comes for a number of hours to see to see their relative and actually some of the seniors um, senior nurses will be able to verify death specifically the um, site, site practitioners or site managers um, so you can often have a discussion with them if you're very, very busy and they might be able to um, relieve you of that, of that duty, of that job, and they might be able to do that for you. Moving on similar note, um, does anyone have any tips or tricks about death certificates? So the death verification is what you go and do on the ward. It's when you go and see the patient and you say this patient has passed away and you give the time of death and your documentation. So you are certifying that they have died. The death certificate is the legal document which you go and fill in in the mortuary at a later time, usually the next day. And that's where you put down what their cause of death was, the last time that you saw them alive, who the consultant in charge of the patient was, and kind of and any other relevant information. This is something that should always be discussed with the consultant who's looking after the patient. Yeah, I think for me personally, I like to directly ask my consultant, what would you like me to put as 1A? Is there anything you'd like me to put as 1B? Anything 1C? Anything as 2? And it will just help you out knowing that this is what my consultant has said. I've always found in every hospital, the, the staff that work in the bereavement office in the mortuary are some of the nicest people in the whole hospital and they are incredibly used to F1s coming down and never having done a death certificate before. So don't be afraid to go down and to say, can you talk me through this? Can you walk me through what I need to do? Um, and they'll be more than happy because it saves them having to call you back later if you've done it wrong. So just don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, thanks again, guys. I think that was a really good discussion on different types of jobs. Uh, I'd like to do another top takeaway messages. And I think mine would be, you're about to have a conversation with a specialty or radiology, spend five, 10 minutes preparing so you can go into that conversation uh, looking really slick and having all your points prepared so you get, get everything that you want to happen done. Yeah, I agree. My top tip would be to put yourself in the shoes of that specialist. Um, think about what they would want to know before you contact them uh, and then you'll be in a better position for when you speak to them. Yeah, my top tip is remember that everybody in hospitals is busy um, and so just taking little steps to make everyone else's jobs easier, like being prepared before you pick up the phone. And my top tip is um, when you're filling in a discharge summary, um, keep the information um, just to what you think the GP or another medical professional reading this letter in the future will need. Well, guys.
thank you so much. Um, ne our next session is going to be on communications. So until then, goodbye. Bye.